We gather this morning coming together from lives that may seem apart. Some of us have bundled our children into coats, struggled with car seats, promised pancakes when Sunday school is out. Some of us have walked just a few blocks, enjoying the crisp air, noticing the sounds of the city in the morning. Some of us come with hurts that feel deep and fresh. Some of us with the sounds of laughter still ringing in our ears. We gather this morning, coming together from lives that may seem apart. And in our gathering, we show the truth that our lives are indeed connected knitted together in love. This past Friday night, Peter and I went out for a date, maybe the second or third since the baby was born, which from what I hear from other new parents is actually not a bad record. We went to see The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which is a movie about a man with an unusual form of reverse aging. He is born old and grows younger over time. Obviously, there's some willing suspension of disbelief in the movie and some really good special effects and art uh, makeup work. The very beginning of the movie shows Benjamin Button's birth, tiny like a baby, but with the face, skin, and health of a 90-year-old man. Without giving too much away, I'll say that this baby is greeted with some horror by his family and eventually makes his way to a foster mother. She is determined to keep the baby, although her husband tries to dissuade her. Leave it alone, he says. We don't even know if it is human. Benjamin Button in the movie is human, albeit with a strange and somewhat magical ailment. Much of the movie, in fact, plays on the idea that no matter what strange twists and turns our lives take, we all share some common human experiences, experiences that are ours just by virtue of our humanness. But the question of who is human and who is not has been a subject of debate for philosophers, tyrants, and everyday wanderers. At times, of course, it has had dire consequences, as when whole groups of people have been classified as subhuman or somehow differently human. This kind of thinking lies behind some of the worst genocides in human history and at the heart of racism. There have been times when the question about what makes us human has been given ugly answers. Today, though, I'm curious not about those especially ugly times, but about the answers that seek to, not about the answers that seek to divide us from each other, but the answers that seek to define what it is that unites us what it is that makes us know that we are members of the human race together. Because there is something particular 
I think, about being human. This past Tuesday was the 200th anniversary of Charles Darwin's birth, and there have been celebrations all over the country, including quite a few at ethical societies and Unitarian Universalist congregations. I wonder whether Darwin would have been amused or just surprised that his ideas are still, all these years later, controversial. One of the arguments that I hear sometimes against the idea of evolution is that it's degrading to believe that humans are descended from other animals. In fact, while doing research for this platform, I found information about billboards that an anti-evolution group put up in Oregon, showing a man evolving back into a monkey, and numerous blog posts and essays trying hard to draw the distinctions between monkeys and men. But those of us who ascribe to evolution don't need to be convinced that there are differences between monkeys and us. It's a question of how we got there, not who we are. Indeed, I think that Darwin's work highlights the distinctiveness of humanity, that evolution creates an elegant line, and even more interestingly to me, suggests that the line is continuing. Frankly, when I look around at the range of human behavior in the world, I sometimes take comfort in the idea that we are evolving still, that we remain a work in progress. We are, however, human now, and it's that piece that interests us this morning. What is it that makes us uniquely human? What traits do set us apart from the monkeys? and other species that preceded us and that cohabitate now? What can we identify about ourselves, about each other, that makes us who we are? I was asked just this question at one of my very first experiences with the larger ethical culture movement. A month or so after this congregation chose to appoint me as the fourth senior leader here, I went up to New York City to meet with the leadership committee of the American Ethical Union. We spoke for a little over an hour, mostly about my background, my training, my own grounding as a religious leader. There was a little time, though, for some conversation about philosophy more generally. And among those questions was one posed by another ethical culture leader who asked me what it was that I thought made us human. It was an interesting question, and one that I wasn't quite expecting, prepared as I was to talk about my classes in congregational administration and whether or not I'd studied the history of aesthetics. As I began that day to answer, I found myself fumbling a bit which is usually an indication that I've hit on something out of the ordinary, something worth a little more thought. For some reason, that day in New York, I suddenly thought of Peter Singer and found him popping into my answer. Singer is the philosopher best known for two radical viewpoints. First, an argument against speciesism, which the always handy Wikipedia defines as discrimination on the grounds that a being belongs to a different species. And second, an argument for abortion that includes infanticide in the realm of acceptable behaviors, based on the idea that infants do not have the characteristics of a human being. 
Singer's work on this field of applied ethics has been focused on a theoretical treatment of severely, severely disabled infants, and as one can imagine, has been the focus of intense criticism from disability advocates. I am no expert on Peter Singer's work, and I'm hardly qualified to present an argument against it. He offers, it seems to me from my reading, disturbing possibilities. But even while I recoil from some of what he writes, I am interested in the aim behind his work, which is at its essence an attempt to define what is truly human. He writes in his book, Practical Ethics, Quote, the fact that a being is a human being in the sense of a member of the species Homo sapiens is not relevant to the wrongness of killing it. It is rather characteristics like rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness that make a difference. End quote. If we can set aside the context for his argument, we may be able to focus on his attempt to tease out what makes some people essentially human, as opposed to being simply a member of the species Homo sapiens, as he puts it. Singer points to rationality, autonomy, and self-consciousness as the defining characteristics, the elements of humanity that make the taking of life wrong. So all of this, for some reason, was running through my head that day in New York as I was trying to define for the leadership committee what makes us human. I will say the actual quotes were not running through my head. I'm not that good. <laughs> it was more a sense of fuzzy awareness, a memory of reading about Singer and his work and trying to see if that played into my answer at all. As I spoke that day, though, it became clear that I didn't agree with Singer, that I wanted to make an articulation of humanness broader. And indeed, each time since that I've thought about this question, I've been aware that the answers I can articulate cut the boundaries always too close, keep off people who I want to include people about whom I feel compelled to say, yes, of course, they're human. Of course, I see a kinship between my being and theirs. And so it's been as I've run through some of the traits that I consider to be integral to humanity, but which, after all, I find I don't want to identify as ultimately necessary. Yes, I think that a key component of human interaction and human life is communication, but I am unwilling to draw the boundary so that it excludes people who cannot or will not communicate. I have often thought that empathy might be one of the most basic of human qualities, but quite apart from the displays of empathic behavior we see in non-human animals, I am also unwilling to draw the boundary in such a way as to exclude that very small segment of the human population that, for chemical or other reasons, is unable to feel empathy. The psychological term for this phenomenon might be psychopathy or sociopathy, and it is by all accounts a terrible affliction. But I want to include people thus categorized in the human family. As some of you might have seen, I made a special request for input from all of you in preparation for this platform. 
I love the conversations that I get to have with you after a platform, during our community sharing time, or later during coffee hour in emails and conversations. But I also like to hear your thoughts as I'm preparing my platforms. What questions the description in the newsletter has brought up for you? What recommendations you might have for my research? I did hear from one person who was thinking along the empathy lines and who shared a passage from a book she's been reading, The Singing Neanderthals, The Origins of Music, Language, Mind, and Body by Stephen Mithen. The passage takes that idea behind empathy and makes it a little more technical, I think. Mithen writes, an appreciation that another individual's knowledge, belief, and desires are different from one's own requires a mind-reading ability, sometimes referred to as theory of mind, which is central to the social lives of modern humans. It may be that all non-human primates lack such mind-reading abilities. The West member who sent me the passage pointed out that this theory of mind can be seen both behind the positive trait of empathy, but also the ability of humans to deceive one another. I like the idea of getting to an element of humanness that is a little deeper than empathy, but still worry that the boundary is too small. Singer may be right that infants lack rationality and autonomy. They certainly lack theory of mind. But as a new mother, I know that something deep inside me wants to affirm that my child is indeed a fellow human being. I think this is where faith comes in. Felix Adler, the founder of Ethical Culture, was quite a philosopher and left us with a rich collection of writings on everything from the importance of family to the value of democracy. Nowhere, though, do I find him so eloquent as when he is speaking about human worth, about his deep and abiding faith in the preciousness of each human being. In an ethical philosophy of life, one of his last works, and the piece that really describes his metaphysic, he wrote about how he could ascribe worth to every human being. He writes, my answer is that certainly I do not discover the quality of worth in people as an empirical fact. In fact, in many people, I do not even discover value. Judging from the point of view of bare fact, many of us could very well be spared. Many are even in the way of what is called progress. And the suggestion of some extreme disciples of Darwin, Darwin again, that the degenerate and defective should be removed, or the opinion of others that pestilence and war should be allowed to take the unpleasant business off our hands, is from the empirical point of view not easily to be refuted. I can also enter into, if I do not wholly share the pessimistic mood with regard to actual human nature expressed by Schopenhauer and others, to the list of repulsive human creatures mentioned by Marcus Aurelius in one of his morning meditations, the backbiter, the scandalmonger, the informer, etc., might be added in modern times the white slaver, the exploiter of child labor, the fawning politician, and many another revolting type. End quote. 
Adler was no Pollyanna about human nature, no naive optimist about the aspects of humanity that we see around us. And yet he too shared the feeling that I have had, that I imagine some of you have had, that despite all of these negative qualities, despite the boundaries that we might try to place on what humanity really means, despite the intellectual and philosophical arguments which are, as he puts it, not easily to be refuted, despite all this, there is something worthwhile, something precious, something human that we recognize in each other. Adler went on to talk about the fact that he does not find worth in others. He attributes it to them. In other words, he believes in it. And in the end, that's the best that I can do when trying to describe just what it is that makes us human, what it is that unites us as humanity together. All of the boundaries I have tried to draw fail me. And I simply say that I can feel it, that we can feel it, this humanity that we share. That somehow we recognize it when we see another person, no matter that person's autonomy or ability to communicate or theory of mind. Just as the foster mother recognized it, this humanness in Benjamin Button, in the little old man baby she saw before her. And so perhaps we return to empathy after all, but from a different angle this time. Perhaps part of what makes us human, part of what distinguishes us in that way, is the ability to arouse the deep human-to-human -human empathy in another person. We are human to the extent that we are recognized by our fellow humans, which means that it is up to us up to all of us, to see the humanity in each other. You know, this morning we have been talking about some of the extremes of recognizing humanity, from Singer's highly controversial and politicized work, to genocides based on the idea of a class of subhumans, to Benjamin Button and the fanciful and disturbing idea of being born old. But the truth is that most of the time, we don't live in the extremes. We live in the middle, where it's easy enough to say that, of course, we recognize those around us as human, and not always easy to behave that way. Because part of truly recognizing another's humanity, of acknowledging them as fully part of the human family, is to recognize their uniqueness that quality about them that makes them entirely themselves, while also holding on to the sense that they are deeply connected to us nonetheless, made of the same stuff that we are. I've often heard the statistic that humans are 99.9% .9 the same, that this number represents our shared DNA. That's the scientific side of things, and it's a wonderful statistic, startling and powerful. On the faith side of things, where we talk about what we believe, what we value, I don't need a statistic to tell me that we share a common spark, a common life. 
I can feel it, and even more importantly, I affirm it. Our task as a religious community, as an ethical culture community, is to remember that spark, that common humanity that we share with every other person. Here in the regular world, between the extremes, that means treating people with fairness and kindness. It means remembering our spouse's humanity, her deep, unique gifts, even when she forgets to unload the dishwasher for the 17th time. It means remembering the bus driver's humanity, even when he growls at us to hurry up while we are desperately trying to find the right change. It means remembering our own humanity, even when we have disappointed ourselves yet again, even when we have procrastinated on that project for far too long or rolled over in bed when we promised ourselves we'd get out for a walk. No one, I think, will write a philosophical treatise on this kind of humanness. And if they did, it certainly wouldn't get a lot of press. But it's these acknowledgments, these attempts to honor our shared humanity that move us forward together, that help us, perhaps, to evolve. As we remember Darwin then and monkeys, let's remember, too, the spark of human life that burns inside each of us. And let's hope for an evolution that guards the spark carefully, that honors it for what it is, that element that makes us 99.9% like everyone else, and somehow only ourselves. Our closing words this morning are from Norman Cousins, a writer and peace activist and sometime attender at both Ethical Culture and Unitarian Universalist congregations. I am a single cell in a body of four billion cells. The body is humankind. I am a single cell. My needs are individual, but they are not unique. I am interlocked with other human beings in the consequences of our actions, thoughts, and feelings. I will work for human unity and human peace for a moral order in harmony with the order of the universe. Together we share the quest for a society of the whole equal to our needs, a society in which we need not live beneath our moral capacity and in which justice has a life of its own. We are single cells in a body of four billion cells. The body is humankind. <laughs>